IntelliKey Leadership Stories with Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stenson. Connect with us on LinkedIn or visit our website, pureintellikey.com. Here's your host, Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stenson. Kirsten, isn't it exciting? We're on all these new platforms now. I love it. So excited. So we're on fire. Yeah, we're doing good. We're doing good. Well, and, and on this show, uh, those of you who have been listening week over week, you've heard some of the great guests we've talked to. Kirsten, I'm reminded at the very outset of this, you and I said there are so many people out there with great beliefs or values or principles, but, you know, what are their real life practices? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you and I have really been able to draw out some of these practical steps that people have to offer. That's right. That's right. Well, with that, let's bring in Paulette Jordan to our interview. Paulette is a candidate for the U.S. Senate from Idaho, and she joins us from the campaign trail. Yeah, first of all, I just I think you guys are beautiful people, and I'm, I'm grateful that you're doing this. Uh, I love the concept behind your show. So I think just to start, you know, we talk about living your full potential and living your purpose. When did you know that this might be something you wanted to pursue in terms of uh, leadership and politics. What about your background or your mentoring or your family kind of led you to this point? I wouldn't say that I necessarily pursued it because when it was first presented to me back when I was in college or even younger, I I didn't think that this was an area that I I wanted to be in. It was just, it pursued me. I would say it started really when I was a young kid. My grandmother, and, and I will even go back further, my lineage, coming from a line of chiefs and leaders, men and women, you know, in our culture, you're raised to be brought up much like them. And because that's the standard in your culture and your family, you know, I'm the same way. I see myself doing the same thing naturally to my own two sons. But you raise them to be leaders and to be responsible and to be accountable and to look out for everybody. And I was raised that way. I remember when my great-grandmother, she would often say to me, uh, when we'd enter into a space, here I am, this little girl with this very elderly woman uh, in her 80s, and she would uh, she'd walk into an arena of, of people, and everyone would come to her and you know give her you know, kind remarks and high regard, and and uh, because she was seen as the sweetheart of our people and a well-revered matriarch. And so when she was talking to folks, she'd always say, you know, before you get comfortable or settled, make sure you go around the room and shake everyone's hand and ask them if they need anything. Make sure all your elders are taken care of before you take care of yourself, meaning before you go sit down and get comfortable and enjoy things, make sure everyone else is in a good place. And she would say that to me anytime we were ever at an event. And I was just a kid. I'm like five years old at this time. But, uh, you know, I took that very serious. And so I grew up with that understanding that before I was able to be comfortable or to do things, I I had to make sure everyone else was good, safe or, you know, had comfort. Now, you know, I see myself, you know, having this upbringing with my elders and being bred up to be a leader, whether I was being asked to speak or to do something and to be participating in some event or some production uh, amongst my tribe or my community, my family. I just knew that taking this to the higher level, you know, going to my private school at Gonzaga Prep, that was all by the means of my elders. You know, they pressed me to be there. They honored me in that position. They constantly mentored me to do all these things. And, you know, it came down to the point where sometimes life is hard and sometimes you just want to not be out of your comfort zone, but they would always press me to continue being outside of my comfort zone for the sake of everybody. And they would always say, we're all with you. Your ancestors are with you. So keep going. We're proud of you. We need you to be doing this. We need you to, to carry this forward for all of us. And knowing that, 
you know, there's no way you can stop. And there's no way you're going to tell your elders no, because that's not the way I was raised. So I just kept going and I got to college and I remember being at the University of Washington and uh, a good friend of mine were doing an interview because right when I got there, I was asked to step in where there was a need. So of course, when an elder, you know, asked me to step in where there's a need, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to do what's right for everybody. Uh, and as soon as you know it, I'm given titles and I'm asked, asked to do more and, you know, and then granted more responsibility. And, uh, you know, so these titles and uh, responsibilities, they continue to grow and grow and grow year after year. And one year uh, I was doing this interview with the local media and mentor of mine came through and said, this is the new, next U.S. senator. She's going to be a U.S. senator someday. So keep a good eye on her. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, okay, I, my mind is not there. I'm not involved in politics. And I was thinking, no way, Jose, do I want to be in politics? Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to be involved in what I felt like was the muck. And, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I just want to go home, help my people, do what's right. But, you know, again, wasn't thinking politics. As soon as I was graduating uh, from college and just figuring out what the next step was, my grandfather reached out. He's a World War II veteran. He was a former chairman of my tribe, chief judge. You know, he was our natural resources ambassador, my mentor. Uh, this man took me to school back and forth from the reservation to private school in uh, Spokane. And he would tell me uh, every day, you know, we, we are, we're waiting for you. And when he came upon my, my graduation date, he says, you know, we need you home. And I went to an event with him and right away he took me to a room full of elders in our community. And there's hundreds of people in this space. They're having a conference. And he stood up in the middle, right in the middle of that whole conference, took the mic and said, this woman right here, she is going to be our future. And she is our next leader. We have to get behind her and ensure she's our voice. And that was it. Basically, that's like an endorsement for you to be in politics. And so that's my tribal council role. Um, So basically, by their urging, you know, I I got into politics of my tribe. And from there, you know, it's it's like uh, the rest is history. But, you know, one step always leads after the other. And I'd say I didn't seek this role. It sought me. But as I'm, you know, they'll say that sometimes you're, when you're successful and you're doing the good work, you're going to be voluntold to do things. Uh, and I think for me, it's just a privilege. So you got to look at it that way. And I'll, I'll continue to do the work as long as I'm asked to be here. We're just so glad to have a guest today, Bo Brabo, the author of a terrific book called From the Battlefield to the White House to the Boardroom. Leading oh. <laughs> yeah. And so, and he has seen it all in all of those. So we're going to talk about leading organizations to value-based results. Bo, so happy to have you on the program. Uh, thank you, Mark. It's, it's a pleasure, for sure. I love it. Well, that title alone describes your journey in the U.S. Army, rising up to the chief of HR operations in the White House Communications Agency, presidential communications officer for both Presidents Bush and Obama. So this is clearly not just a political kind of appointment. What what are some of the different cultures that you saw in each one of those roles? A lot of different corporate cultures there. Yeah, for sure. So the battlefield, you know, I often get asked, you know, even, even at the corporate level, like, why do we want like combative leadership in corporate America or leadership in combat or from the battlefield? And I go to them and I say, look, if you're looking at combat in the battlefield, that's crisis. What's happening today in the world? A crisis. We are every single business, every single leader has faced the COVID pandemic crisis. Did you have crisis leadership background before you got before this was on your head and on your business? No, maybe not. Probably not. And the experiences from someone who 
had this as part of their life. And I'm not just talking just about myself, but when you're, when you're in those scenarios that are life and death potential and you have people under your charge and you're trying, and you're trying to keep them safe as well and accomplish the mission, that's crisis at its finest. It's volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. Business leaders are facing that today uh, like never before. So that's what Battlefield did for me, being in combat. That's the crisis leadership aspect of it. But all the rest of the time when you're not in combat, you're really homing those tried and true leadership principles, very formally developed in that type of organization in the military. But I think they, they hold true for anybody in business, anybody in any type of organization when you're talking about leading people. And by leading people, I often talk about it from, you know, you lead up, you lead down, you lead sideways. You don't have to have direct reports to, to be a leader. You can lead your CEO, you can lead your peers and your subordinates all at the same time if you have the foundation on how to execute and how to do that. That's very good. And, it, you know, and it's interesting you bring that up because I think a lot of people would question the command and control military style of leadership and how it would apply, you know, in today's organization where we're not really looking for the top down, follow my orders. And I'm just curious how that does translate from your experience and what you've seen. Yeah, sure. So the top down, you know, start with crisis. A lot of times you're looking for that one person to really pull you through. Somebody's got to take charge and pull us through. So the command and control during crisis, for sure. The best leaders I ever worked with from the military, they empowered their junior leaders to take control, to be in charge, to actually run the show, run their, run their departments, run their divisions, whatever the case might be. And those were the best leaders. I think that is a very good attribute about some of our best corporate leaders. Power them, give them purpose. And I think those are the best military leaders that I ever served with. They took care of their people. They cared about their families. They cared about everything about them, the whole person concept. That's what I would love to see get into the corporate world is truly caring, having a very individual approach that you know who's on your team. And if you want to build high performing teams, you've got to do that. You got to know who's on your team. You got to know all about them as much as you can, what impacts them, what's impacting them on the home front. Uh, because when you start seeing little changes in behaviors, it could be something at home that's impacting them. It could be something um, in the news that they saw that that's something impacting outside. them. Well, I guess it's within that realm of exploring different people and different leaders' uh, experiences that we welcome our guest today, Christina Eanes. Christina, welcome to our program. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Christina has such an interesting background. You know, anytime I look at a bio, and it starts with former FBI violent crimes <laughs> analyst uh, and a senior manager, literally in Quantico, you know, I, I get excited. <laughs> <laughs> As I, I know we're going to talk about some interesting leadership qualities, but now she's also an author, speaker, a podcast host in her own right. Christina, it's just an interesting combination of experiences. How does the past experience inform and guide your current work in the self-improvement area? Oh, great, great question. And uh, it seems completely disjointed, but it's not. So yes, I did start out in the field of law enforcement, but I've always, my father was a teacher growing up and then a principal. So I've always kind of had that background. So as I was in law enforcement, as a crime analyst, not only was I a coach slash mentor type leader, but I also taught college on the side. And then when I was with the FBI's Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, VICAP, part of my job was to go around and teach detectives and police officers how to use our system. 
So there was always some sort of teaching, facilitating, coaching, mentoring type thing. And then when I left violent crime, because I knew I couldn't do it forever and I wanted to get promoted. So I went in and joined the FBI's leadership development program as senior manager. So I had a couple of teams of folks, instructors and logistics that we trained leaders anywhere from line level up to executive level and mainly in emotional intelligence, which I love Kirsten that you mentioned awareness and self-reflection because that's a lot of what we were teaching. And I fell so much in love with that, that once the kids left the house, then I decided to open up my own uh, company, which is a professional development firm. We teach soft skills related to all that stuff I fell in love with when I was in law enforcement as a senior manager. And then I also have the books and the podcast and the YouTube channel on top of that, all with the mission of helping people learn, grow, and achieve. Mm. So good. It's such exciting stuff. And I, I have <laughs> to ask, you know, when I think of FBI or law enforcement, EQ is not the word I would choose, <laughs> right? <laughs> I would not say, oh, they've received an incredible amount of EQ. Can you explain that to me? Yeah, so emotional intelligence, actually the more successful. So I was not ever a police officer or an agent. Actually only about, oh, last I checked, it was only about 30% of the FBI are agents. All the rest are, for lack of a better term, support staff, right? So professional staff, analysts, scientists, janitors, mechanics, uh, you name it, that job is probably part of the FBI. Um, so one, it's when you think of law enforcement, generally you think of the gun toter, but that's actually a small percentage of them. But there are, and it's funny because uh, my first two degrees are in criminal justice. And what, one thing that we learned is the more emotional intelligence that a law enforcement personnel, whether they're the gun toter or not, has, the more successful they are in like de-escalating violence or interacting with others. So there is a percentage of them <laughs> that are emotionally intelligent, but that's not normally a training that one would get in the field of law enforcement. Now there are some forward thinking jurisdictions that actually do that kind of training for the police officers, but priority is safety at this point, right? Mm -hmm. Safety training, and then anything else they can throw on top of that. But I like to think of, of course, from my perspective of the world now is that emotional intelligence training would also be safety training because mm -hmm. they're helping people interact with others more effectively. Yeah. yeah. And I couldn't help but think about as you were describing this emotional intelligence, you know, if we turn this whole scenario inside out and mm -hmm. say, if the analysts and the officers, agents had that kind of empathy, we are trying to deal with the human on the other yeah. side of this exchange and or confrontation or however far it escalates, how different those interactions might be. So true. Well, and it's such a, it's a, such a fine line because you see the absolute worst of humanity. Yes. Right. So like you, that person sitting across from you, it's so hard to have empathy in a situation like that. It's walking a fine line to protect themselves, right? Because they're dealing with the worst of the worst, pretty much on a daily basis, not getting jaded, but also not losing your humanity. It, it's just, it's a hard balance, mm -hmm. quite honestly. You've joined us at another one of our conversations in our series on amplifying black voices to open the microphone and, and open our ears and open our minds to understand the black experience better, to understand what our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues have been going through and what we really need to hear. Our guest today is Dr. Kimberly Austin. Kim, so glad to have you with us. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. 
Kim, you have so many roles. You're a wife, mother, doctor, yoga instructor. We would really like to explore and hear from you, almost as if we were just in a coffee shop or having lunch and you say, you know, Mark, Kirsten, here's what you need to understand about what's going on. What would you tell us? Uh, well, Mark and Kirsten, I, I think if I were to be asked, um, what is it that we need to understand uh, about where we are in society, where we are uh, as a as a culture, where we are as a race, is that a lot of this is rooted in things that happened even hundreds of years ago that we've not really dealt with as a as a community, uh, as a country. We have a, a lot of things that are stereotypes. We have a lot of things that have been drilled into uh, our heads as far as what it means to be a black person and and what the where the ceiling is for being a black person and uh, where the limitations are for being a black person that I, I think one the black community in some way has bought into but then it two it is um, reproduced on movies and on screens and in political campaigns and those types of things such that most people believe those images that they see and the things that they hear when I was in high school I was always a fairly good student and, and did a great job. But when I first um, started telling even my teachers and my counselors at school what I wanted to become uh, as a physician, their first thing was to try and put a limitation on me and try to put a ceiling on me and try to ask me, wouldn't I rather uh, go into nursing, being an LPN? There's nothing wrong with being an LPN, but that's not what I said I wanted to do. But their immediate response was um, that's not something that you will be able to accomplish. Um, now, I came from a family of teachers. My mom and my dad were both teachers. They were both educated, um, both had their master's degree. So education was something that was really important. And I had friends who had uh, ideas and thoughts and things that they wanted to do and things that they wanted to be, that they did listen to those outside voices that told them that they couldn't do it. And so they did not pursue some of the dreams that, that may they may have had. And I have friends right now that are, they're grown, but they are regretful of not doing the things that they wanted to do in life because they listened to those outside forces that told them that they can. And I think that's the, the first thing, honestly, that we have to um, really address when we're, we're talking about uh, how do we progress the, the Black community? How can we support the Black community? We have to stop seeing a person who is a, a dark skin or light skin or any complexion of brown skin. We have to stop seeing them, one, as a threat, um, one. And then two, we have to see them as, as li being limited. Even if they didn't come from a home, my parents, neither one of them came from a home uh, where people were educated, but both of them went to college. And then um, they, you know, my dad was an athlete in college. And, and so he had some struggles and, and some things that happened. And he left school, went back eventually. But still, they came from places where uh, they were told that they couldn't, but they push through so that they could. If we had more people that were investing as much time in telling students what they can do instead of telling students what they can't do, I, I think we would have a lot more success um, in, in education. I think we'd have a lot more successful African-American uh, people just in general as, as well. And listeners, continue to come back to our podcast. Even in our next episode, we'll be continuing conversations about this conscious leadership and this idea that you can fulfill your own potential and achieve your own goals while doing good for the people and the planet. Kirsten, as we continue this conversation about IntelliKey, we have a sense that this is not just a key performance indicator like we tease each other about, but it really is a human potential indicator, isn't it? 
It really is. And it's so exciting. You know, you and I have talked about this idea of potential. Everything has a soul. A business has a soul. The earth has a soul. And even Lynn, being in a conversation with you, that you can feel that something about the soul of what's coming is being elevated. There's an evolution that we're stepping into and it's being harnessed. And it's exciting because it's, it's here but we haven't quite unfolded yet exactly what it's going to look like in the future. So listeners, please join our conversation. Go to your podcast player and leave us a review or comments or ratings. We'd really appreciate it. And of course, then join us again for our next episode of IntelliKey Leadership Stories. For Kirsten Gouldy, I'm Mark Stinson, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to our second season of IntelliKey Leadership Stories. Your host is Kirsten Gouldy with co-host Mark Stinson. This podcast is produced by BSB Media. You can listen anywhere in the world, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Ghana, and iHeartRadio. Subscribe now so you won't miss an episode when we begin Season 3 of IntelliKey Leadership Stories.